Hello and welcome to Northern Lights podcast series, where over the coming months, I'll be having a number of discussions with key individuals from across the North, business leaders, politicians, recognized social workers, charity heads, basically anybody who's making a unique and valuable contribution to the future of the North. My name is Armigan Mohammed, and I'm PwC's Regional Chair for the North. And I'm delighted to be here in our virtual studio with Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester. Andy, a very warm welcome to you, and thank you very much. Listen, thanks a lot for, for joining this. Um, oh, you're welcome, Armagan. It's great to uh, to be able to be with you, and I know how many uh, people you have working in city centre Manchester. It's good to be able, through this podcast, to be able to speak to them too. So thanks for having me on. No, perfect, perfect. I'm going to dive straight in, um, Andy. You know, you, like me, I think you, you've got an upbringing in the north, and I'd love to hear what was it like growing up in the north, and in fact, how did it influence the type of person that you are today? Oh, so I've got a tricky secret uh, as mayor of Greater Manchester, which is that I was born in Liverpool. Um, I think people probably know that by now. They probably know they've worked out I'm an Everton supporter, um, but. When I was one, my dad got a job in Manchester. So um, he and my mum decided to move halfway between Liverpool and Manchester. And I grew up in that area, the Lee area, which I went on to represent in Parliament. So I'm very much of the Northwest. I love both cities. Um, I've got an affinity to, to both, and they were both a big part of my, of my upbringing. Manchester for music, the Liverpool area for football, uh, but both of them for fashion and everything, you know, culture, everything. Um, and of course, it was the 1980s. So the Northwest was going through some really tough times. And the things that really shaped me, I guess, and turned me into the, the politician I became were a couple of things. Firstly, going from a Merseyside comprehensive to Cambridge in 1988 told me that this country was, in fact, two very different worlds. Uh, where there were different life chances on offer to people living in different places and going to different schools. And that was uh, an eye-opening experience, uh, if I'm if I'm honest. And then separately, given the 80s and the things that I'd seen at close quarters, the miners' strike in the Lee area, it was when Hillsborough happened at the end of the 1980s when it all kind of came home quite personally around the, I don't know, the... Uh, the sense of injustice really about how people in the north were treated and were treated at that time and many of my friends were at that match and you know, I lived that in a very sort of uh, direct way with, with them so I guess that is what shaped me really uh, it was that upbringing you know I, I attribute I can count myself so lucky to have grown up in the northwest of England I, I don't think, believe there's a better place with better people anywhere in the world but it's faced its challenges and it's made us what we are, I guess, in terms of um, some of our outlook on life. So I hope that explains the question. I mean, yeah. There's so much more I could say there, but that, yeah, that, those were my formative years. Oh, that's, that's, that's very helpful. Thank you. And interesting. Um, do you, so what's, what's the journey then from that recognition of um, the sort of the inequality? How did that then translate into politics because you, you didn't need to go into politics you could have got into other cycles and still been a big contributor to society that's true uh, so my family wasn't political you know normally people uh, might expect my parents to have been councillors um, or activists and they weren't in, in in any way shape or form they were uh, 
uh, interested in politics and they um, talked to us, myself and my brothers, about it a lot, but not in a way that was overtly uh, political. So I had become quite politicised in the 1980s, then went to university, wasn't a student politician, actually. And it was it was leaving university and in the early 1990s when um, I was really emotionally invested in the 1992 general election and I wanted so much a, a change, which as I saw it, a change that would benefit the Northwest and it didn't come. And I think at that point in my career, I was a journalist at the time, I, I started my career after Cambridge at the Middleton Guardian as an unpaid reporter. That was my very first job out of university. Uh, but it was that general election that sort of took me from being interested in politics to actively wanting to pursue a career within it. And um, it was in 1993 that an incredible stroke of luck happened. I, I was working at a small publishing company in London by then. I, I was talking to the person I'd recruited as my editorial assistant um, about how keen I was to break out of publishing and get into politics. And she surprisingly said, well, my stepmother's an MP. Maybe you should go and work for her. Um, and the, the person I was talking to was Eleanor Mills, uh, who eventually became editor of the Sunday Times magazine. Uh, I think that's one of the best recruitment decisions, the best talent spotting things I ever did in my life. Uh, but but uh, Eleanor's uh, stepmother was Tessa Jowell. And I eventually got the job with Tessa Jowell. And it was that twist of fate, really, that took me into the heart of Labour politics in that 19, middle 90s period, uh, and then all of the changes that, that came after that. So uh, life throws these sort of uh, incredible twists of fate at you, don't they? Sometimes Armageddon, you kind of have yeah. to go with them, don't you? And I, I guess I did in that in that moment. Very much so, very much so. Um, I just want to sort of focus a little bit on how you think about politics, I guess. So now I don't know who said this, but there was a, there was a, a quote someone said along the lines of, you know, the difference between a, a, a politician and a statesman or a stateswoman is that the politician looks as far as the next election, whereas the stateswoman or statesman looks as far as the next generation. Um, how, how do you feel about that in terms of today's politics and how do you navigate that so that you're actually um, contributing to both of those as appropriate? Well, I like the statement. I like the, um, the differentiation because I think it's true. And I certainly would say in the early uh, years when I was uh, an MP, I would definitely have been in the politician category, not the states person um, category. And I think generally modern politics is more populated by politicians rather than uh, states people. I think there has been a, a soundbite culture, a short term culture creep into politics, a superficial approach that probably wasn't there in the in the 70s and 80s. I think politicians of that era were bigger figures than they are today, uh, with bigger ambitions. And I certainly noticed in my time in politics a trend towards something that people call retail politics, you know, very you know, simplistic pledges at election times that are kind of meant to be eye-catching, but not actually, you know, do much to really change change things. And I became weary with that culture, if I'm honest with you. I um in the end stopped sort of getting the kind of uh, satisfaction from the point scoring side of politics, which Westminster really trades on. You know, it's such a, 
a place you know with the benches facing each other it's it's, it's stock in trade is that is that point scoring tribal approach to politics in the end i wanted to i went there to change things as a lot of politicians do but you know in the end i felt i couldn't pursue some of the things i wanted to do by staying there and i've actually found it quite liberating uh, to leave westminster and the point scoring uh, approach to party politics and I think in the role I'm currently in, I can actually pursue longer term ambitions. And the biggest long term ambition that's always defined my political career is equality for the north of England, you know, with the same treatment, the same investment, the same opportunity for people living here as people in other parts of the country take for granted. And, and um, Andy, how is that going? You know, because you, you're, I guess, to, to one extent, you're you're clearly a very passionate person. You're passionate for the North. You're passionate around equality. You're actually vocal with it as well, you know. Um, um, and I guess, how do you navigate sort of getting the right type of attention for the causes and the passions you have? I think it's work in progress. I think before the pandemic, Manchester was going great guns. Uh, and I think we will be coming out of it. Um, I, I don't think that we... Um, struggling to um, to attract inward investment if you look at the Manchester skyline it tells a very uh, exciting story doesn't it people have come here they've they've backed the place when I stood for election I said I wanted to make Greater Manchester the UK's leading digital city region and we are now in a clear second place to London we are Europe's fastest growing digital and tech hub which is a fantastic statement for me to be able to make as mayor you know i'm obviously capturing the uh, the glory for that other people have achieved but it's not not mine you know it's it's everybody's isn't it there's been a incredible yeah, change yeah. in in the city uh, built by many many people um and i think if i compare the manchester of of, of 2021 to the manchester of 1991 which I came back to after graduating. Well, it's incomparable, absolutely incomparable in terms of the the names of organisations that we have now in our in our city centre, including including your own, with seven hundred and fifty people or so working working there. Hopefully, we'll we'll tempt some of you back to the office at some point because we need you <laughs> to, to come to our pubs and uh, uh, come to our restaurants and coffee shops. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, I, I think Manchester is a growing success story. And, you know, we've always been the sort of um, the sort of the challenger to London, haven't we? You know, the, 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 you know, and I've done a bit of that through the through this pandemic. You know, it, I, I think there's an edge to Manchester that gives it its appeal, I think. And, um, you know, long, long may that be the case. Yeah. How do we make sure that that carries on into the future? Because as, you, as you're right, I mean, this is a moment in time, isn't it? Um, but how do we make sure that the future, the future is where we would want it to be? I think by setting out a really clear vision for where we all want to go, and that's my job, isn't it, to set set out a vision that people can get behind. So, UK's leading digital city region. I, I think we're well on the way to achieving that. The next part of that vision is UK's leading green city region. I think digitalization and decarbonisation are the two driving forces of the 21st century economy. So any place that can claim to be a leader in either or both of those things is a place that is going to be a, a, a national leader and an international leader. So 
I um, will be setting out as part of the coming mayoral election, uh, a, hopefully a pretty compelling vision for a digitally connected um, green uh, leading city region with a big program of change in our public transport system, uh, clean air zone, um, the largest cycling and walking network in, in the UK. I think this will be attractive uh, for inward investors to, to come here, but it also is about showing people everywhere in the country that you can have a genuine quality of life living in Manchester and that it's a, you know, a place that you can have a London style living experience in the city centre, but actually so much more um, if, if we can make this, this place, we can clean up the air, provide better green space, better public transport. You know, I, th I think then we are, we are starting to, to, to show that we are the best place to invest, the best place to live in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Can I, I, I mean, can I take you back to something you said earlier? And I've, I've been reading various things about you and interviews you've had, and, and I oh, guess... That's worrying. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, it'll be fine on the day. Um, so there's something around, if I observe you, you know, you, you grew up in a working class environment, you went to Cambridge, you then went on to Parliament, and in some senses, you're a, you're a poster child for social mobility. And now you've returned to your roots in the north. What are the things that really helped you on your journey and advice you would give to others? Oh, that is such a good question. I am passionate about this because I am somebody who was lucky um, in terms of the teachers that I had, um, the lucky breaks I had, and I mentioned one, working with Tessa Giles' stepdaughter. But... Um, I, I did, I suppose, get into the position where I could benefit from those uh, from those things. I, I I just think there's so much more we need to do to unlock the talent of Greater Manchester. I, I think what I've battled against all my life is is Northern DNA. In that, I've always feared the tap on the shoulder. I've always felt I shouldn't be here. You know, be it, be it arriving at Cambridge or getting into Parliament, and it does. It's both our kind of sort of winning um, characteristic, but also our kind of also our, our weak point, if, if I can put it that way, in that I think what attracts people to Northerners is the sense of connection, relatability, and all of that warmth. But we, we do have a tendency to um, do ourselves down. And I, I certainly um, kind of feel there's a, a tendency to think that we'll be employees you know, we, we will work for other people rather than be employers ourselves. And I am on, on a bit of a mission to try and smash down some of those kind of, you know, self-perpetuating you know, self, uh, stereotypes of, of what we are and what we can achieve. And I, I do think, though, that it is, it's about, you know, what I learned was when, when I went to Cambridge, my dad said to me, you'll go there and then the world will literally open up for you because of what it what Cambridge does for you. And I've always said to him that he was only half right because what I found was I did get interviews because of the Cambridge thing on my CV, but I, I rarely got the job. And I often found it was connections that got, got the job. And I still think that's the way this country works. Education takes you so far, but it's the social capital that come from family connections that actually takes you that extra, extra mile. And it's why I've set up um, in Greater Manchester uh, a work shadowing scheme 
and I would ask everybody on this call to check it out and hopefully be a part of it. This is on our GMAX system, the Greater Manchester Apprenticeships and Careers Service. You know, I want people who work in your organisation to make yourselves available for young people in Greater Manchester to come and shadow you, experience your world, you know, get a foot in the door and just see what it's like at PwC or organisations like yours. Because the talent's there, but it doesn't know how it can get through the door. And I think we've got to find ways of building social capital around young people in some of our less affluent uh, communities, because it's that, I think, that often holds people back. I had to work as an unpaid reporter on the Middleton Guardian, and that sticks in my throat even to today. You know, why? Who can do that? You know, that, that immediately is saying that opportunity in journalism is going to be linked to somebody with more money than somebody with less. And I still think this bedevils um, uh, our, our, our economy and our society, and it perpetuates uh, inequality. So for me, if I could just summarise it this way, uh, Armagan, you know, I look at Manchester City Centre today, and as I said before, it's radically different to the Manchester City Centre of my youth. But for the kids in the 10 boroughs around the city centre, they will look at it and they won't see a world that's for them. They see that as a world that other people have been sort of moved to come and work in Manchester. And Manchester will only be really punching its own weight fully when the kids growing up around that city centre look at it and think, I could work there. I could uh, make my future there. And, and that kind of belief sort of kind of carries the, all the way through. And I don't think we're there yet. We, but we've got to get there and we've got to build that talent pipeline into all of our all of our communities it's why i've done uh, a lot uh, around young people's opportunities it's why i created a free bus pass for all 16 to 18 year olds in greater manchester um, because i don't want any barrier to be in their way uh, in terms of connecting them to opportunity and i and i feel this really passionately because my own journey though i did in some ways navigate the the system and climb that greasy pole and I am a, in some ways an advert for social mobility I also saw how fragile it was and how lucky I was and how easy it is for the doors to slam in your face I, I think that's a great shout inviting PwC and others to join that scheme just just remind us what that scheme is again it's called meet your future and it's a work shadowing scheme um, and it's organized through um, the GMAX website the Greater Manchester Apprenticeships and Careers Service so we have a team at the combined authority that would love to hear from anybody on this on this call and the idea is i i, I don't know what you whether you did old-fashioned work experience i did i did two weeks at i said to, i said to my school that i maybe wanted to work in languages and possibly within the travel industry and the work experience they found for me was two weeks at the thomas cook shop in st helens and the thing that i got from it the only thing probably was that I didn't want to work in a shop in St. Helens for all of my life. So old-fashioned work experience, which still exists, I think, can often lower expectations if, if we're not careful. I and I think work... Sorry. Sorry. I, I think work shadowing Armageddon is so much better. I think it's easier for organisations to provide it. Just let somebody be with you at your elbow for a day, you know, just follow you around, ask you a few questions, experience your world, what you're doing, you know, that... That, for me, is so much more valuable than somebody just sitting tucked away in the corner making the tea. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, and I did have a, a various um, blue-collar paint jobs and painting jobs and lots of stuff like that uh, along the way. Uh, what was your first job? Uh, it was actually um, painting an industrial um, warehouse. That's my first I'd job. <laughs> I'd rather work in... Uh, 
I'd rather doing. work in Thomas Cook's in St. Helens, yeah, I, I think, than do what you Yeah, I, I, looking at you now, you've, you've worn really well. I think you've had a, an easier newspaper around than me as well. <laughs> I did have a newspaper around. The Sunday around was one that lives with me. Yeah, right? I, used to, I used to feel it would tilt me off my bike. It was so heavy. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, uh, actually, I've already got a couple of more things I really wanted. So, you know, people, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of discussion around leadership, right? Different leadership styles, how people lead, particularly with the, the, the listeners to this podcast. How, how would you describe your leadership style and, and what, what we found really works for you? And I guess secondly, related to that is um, how do you get followership? Because your followership isn't just the people you would meet, you know, within a within the environment you 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 work, you've actually got a much broader group of people that you're trying to achieve followership from. Well, I've been in politics a long time, Armagan, and you know, I've obviously been always of the northwest. So I guess my you know, people who do follow me will be rooted here, and they know me now. They've seen what I focus on. I guess they've got because I've been around for so long, and you know, I have been. 20 years, an elected politician in Greater Manchester this year, since the 20th anniversary of that. I just think people have got to know me. They've not been able to avoid me at times on Granada reports and, you know, BBC Northwest. I've been around. So people, some may like me, some may not. It's just that people probably know me. They kind of know where I'm coming from now. And I guess that's a bit lacking in the transient world of, of, of politics these days. In terms of leadership style, I've re yeah, I'm really clear about it. I've got a clear answer to your question. And I've learned this. I didn't know it straight away, but I've learned it. Firstly, inspire people with something worth following. So I said when I became mayor that I wanted to end rough sleeping. And everyone said, why? You know, that's too big. Why are you saying that? It's hostage fortune. The reason I say that is because you've got to give people big, big things to motivate them. In the government I was in, they used to, I always used to hear people say, under promise and over deliver. And I hate that phrase because who's going to get excited by an under promise? You know, who's, who's going to get lifted by that and motivated by that? I, I don't think they will. I, and then you're not going to over deliver because the under promise won't have inspired anybody to, to really kind of commit to it. So I'm the opposite. I would say, you know, aim high, you know, aim for the moon of what they say and fall a bit short if necessary. But lift people with a big vision that's number one in terms of my leadership recommendations and then number two in pursuit of that big vision be prepared to walk in other people's shoes and particularly in the shoes of people who you might say are the most junior or the lowest paid members of your team see it from their perspective if you see it from their perspective and you know they have sort of trust that you know it from their perspective i think you will build a sort of you know, you'll build a team spirit around what you're trying what you're trying to do and i would say those two things are absolutely at the core of my of my leadership style great thank you and, and i think that resonates with with a lot of us uh, and it, it sort of transcends the type of organization one works in as well uh, so I, my, my final question uh, andy is um you you mentioned you know all the PwC people and you know listen we're, we're all looking forward to coming back into the the centre of uh, Manchester as well as I'm sure are lots of other people and enjoying all the uh, amazing facilities there. But is there something? Is there a, a restaurant, a pub, or an activity that really you just love doing in Manchester and and you'd recommend for people to to try out as soon as the uh, lockdown opens up? It's music. 
it always has been Armagan. I mean, that is the reason why I came to love Manchester in my teenage years. I, I did. I was really lucky. I mean, I was growing up, um, you know, 19 in 1989 when the Stone Roses were getting going. And I, I, I had it really lucky from a timing point of view. Um, but I formed a, a massive love of Manchester music at that time. Um, so, you know, even now at the buzz of just going to, to the venues across the city, big and small, I love it. And I will go and watch anything. And I do go and watch anything. And obviously I let, you know, have a, a beer and pizza and whatever, just that is what I love doing. I, I miss that so much, honestly. I, I really have had withdrawal symptoms about that over this year. I saw the Cortinas at the Albert Hall in Manchester in February last year, and I kind of like look back on it as though it was a different land, you know, about being in a that wonderful venue with just the whole place rocking. And it was, yeah, I, I mean, I'm missing that so bad, so badly. So, you know, Manchester, just absorbing the Manchester music scene is a, is a privilege, really. And it, it's one of the reasons why I love being fully based back here now as opposed to um, you know London which I just don't think has that intimacy that you get in, in the Manchester venues and the friendliness and the uh, yeah it's so that's yeah that's an honest answer to what I'm missing I've got new order at Heaton Park triple underlined in my diary for September this year and uh, hoping and praying that that uh, that, that happens um, but um, you know I, I just want to see the city come back uh, come back to life I think it's going to be a different uh, new isn't it um, yeah. I think people maybe, but but that might be a good news because you know the Manchester commute. I'm sure. So anybody listening to this podcast, you you ain't missing that very much, are you? And I know, I know, I'm not either. Um, so maybe if we are all balancing a bit more from home, a bit more maybe from a local hub, and then a bit more in the office, as long as we're still coming into the city centre, you know, to keep the vibrancy, then I think we can kind of find a new balance here that will work um, on lots of levels. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see that new normal sort of take shape later this year. Brilliant, brilliant. Gosh, that, I didn't know about New Order. I, I definitely want, would want to go and watch them. I, I remember getting up once to uh, a New Order song, Blue Monday, and I thought it'd be three minutes long, but it was about five minutes long. <laughs> it tested your, uh, yeah, that was your dance floor stamina. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, Andy, it's been great to hear you talk so passionately about your upbringing, influences, community and passions. And I found it extremely interesting. And I'm sure those listening will as well. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. And I know my passion for the North is is, is more than shared by you and many of the people who work uh, for, for PwC in, in Manchester. I know that because I've met many of them, many of my friends. So I, I think we've just got to all of us, haven't we? Um, come back stronger from all of this haven't we and um you'll see soon i'll be putting out plans for a, a london style public transport system a clean air zone um building out our cycling and walking network i i, I actually think this could well be a, an opportunity for us to kind of in some ways break away from some of the old way of doing things that we were a bit stuck in the great Manchester working week was a bit nine to five monday to friday and i think we could actually break out of a bit of a rut really and, and really create a modern, really attractive, livable city region that, that will take us even further forward when it comes to bringing in the investment we all want to see. So I'm excited about what lies ahead and uh, ready ready to, to embrace the challenges in front of us. And, I, and I'm sure many people listening to this are too. Fantastic. Andy, thank you very much. And I wish you all the best. And to you. Thanks, Armageddon.
You've been listening to Northern Light, and this is the first episode in a series of new podcasts where I will be talking to individuals from across the North who are making a unique and valuable contribution to the region. If you'd like to hear future episodes, please don't forget to subscribe. Mm -hmm.